So uh, any of the kids uh, and anybody who's working uh, with Jigsaw today or building blocks today, this is the time to uh, make your way out. And then they'll come back in for the baptism and for communion. Oh, busy morning, <laughs> a lot going on, um, and so today, so last week we entered into the season of Epiphany, which is the one that follows Christmas, so Christmas is not just one day, it's 12 days, you know the song, the 12 days of Christmas, well that's, those 12 days, not like some of the, some of the channels that show movies leading up to Christmas, they'll say like the 12 days of Christmas before and they'll show a movie, the 12 days of Bond or something like that or 007 or something like this. But Christmas doesn't start until Christmas Day and it lasts for 12 days. And then we enter into this season of Epiphany. And the season of Epiphany, the Sundays as we march through them, what it's about is a, Epiphany is the Greek word for a revealing, for revealing. And so it's the idea of an, epiphany is that, of, a, of an epiphany is that something is present. It's been present all along, but you couldn't see it. It had to be revealed. And in the church, we say that anything that we know about God, we know because God let us know it. God revealed it to us. And so the season of epiphany is about Jesus being revealed as who Jesus is, as a person of the Godhead, as, a, as, as the Son uh, as well as the Messiah of Israel and the entire world. And so the first Sunday of Epiphany is the Magi. We talk about the Magi, the three wise men who come to visit. It was way more than three, just, but we know it as the three wise men. Uh, they come to visit Jesus, and this is the revealing of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. And so today, in the season of Epiphany, we... we, we reflect on and we look at the baptism of Jesus. And the baptism of Jesus is the revelation of Jesus, who was there all along, who was Jesus up until he came to be baptized, but when he comes out of the water, he's revealed to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And so we're going to look at the baptiz at baptism generally today, but at Jesus' specifically. But to get to Jesus' baptism, we need to take a journey. Uh, now, baptism is something that it took me a long time to come to an appreciation for, or to like a decent understanding of. You know, growing up, what I gathered from the ways that baptism was practiced is that it was mostly about me say, like it was a me showing that I'm now a Christian. It was a way that you make a public declaration that I'm a Christian now. But I, I, I was always struck, well, why didn't you just say it? You know, like what's with the water? Or what, I mean, why? And so, you know, it took me a long time, a long time, a long journey to kind of come to an appreciation and an understanding of the why of baptism or what it means. Why is it that we are, at, why we are told by Jesus and that the church for 2,000 years now plus has done this? Why? And so we're going to take, um, uh, take a trip today because every, through the Old Testament, because every time you read about baptism in the New Testament, there are always some kind of, whether it's explicit or not, there's always some connection made to the Old Testament. And so there's this story, like baptism didn't just show up. It was the culmination of this, of, of, of an idea, of these stories and these things to where it has a lot of meaning. But to really understand that meaning, 
we have to go back to the Old Testament and to work our way forward. And so, are you willing to go on that journey with me this morning? Is that okay? It's going to be a quick one. We're going because I mean, obviously, we don't have the time to do. I, you could spend years walking through this in the details, but we don't have that kind of time. Unless you want to sit here that long, I could do it. Um, but no, we'll. So, but before we set off, we need to kind of orient orient ourselves uh, to how to read the Bible. Now, don't let that. I hope you're not offended by it. By that. I, I know you know how to read, but the Bible is a really old book. And there are different ways to read the Bibles. There are ways to read the Bibles devotionally, like the Psalms, reading them prayerfully. But there's other ways to read the Bibles as well. And it's a really old piece of literature. Uh, an old book. I mean, it's more than literature, but it functions as literature as well. And that's part of the beauty of Scripture, of God's working with people to communicate to people, is that God works through the work of people. To, to communicate and to continue communicating. Does that make sense? And so, uh, you know, you don't pick up, if you were to pick up a novel and were to, you were to try and approach it the same way you would approach a textbook, you would just come to it really confused. Or if you were to approach a work from Shakespeare the way you would approach a modern novel, you would, st even though both would be fiction, you would still be really confused because they're operating differently, they're functioning differently. And the way that the Bible functions, the way that it was written, functions differently than much of what we are used to today. Um, and so, one of, the th one of the ways that Scripture functions is it uses patterns or themes or motifs. And so, what you'll see is you'll have one story in Scripture that uses a particular word or a phrase or there's a particular kind of character in that story or there's a particular kind of setting that is part and parcel to that story. But then later, another story will use that same word or phrase, and they want whoever's reading it to be thinking about this other story at the same time that they're reading this one. Does that make sense? So I'll give you a few examples. Um, one would be, um, let's see. So Isaac, Abraham wants to find a wife for Isaac. And so he sends a servant to go and find one from, I think it's his brother, it's Laban. He's related to, uh, to Abraham somehow. I don't remember. It's J it ends up being Jacob's uncle. So, so yeah. Anyway. <coughs> so, he sends a servant to go and find a wife for, for Isaac. And he, where does he go? Does anybody know where he goes? Well, he goes to Nahor is the land. But he goes to a well. Now, it was custom, customary for, the, for the the, one of the chores of young women and families was to go out in the evening and to draw water. So, where, naturally, if you're going to go looking for dates for somebody, you're going to go where all the ladies are coming in the evening. And you just kind of scope them all out and you can see what, who's there. And so he goes to a well and he sees Rebecca. And he, you know, he prays to God before the girls come out. He says, if she offers me water and then offers waters to my camel as well, camels as well, then I know that's the one. And Rebecca comes out and she does it. And so, long story short, he takes Rebecca home with him and then Isaac marries her. Well, Jacob comes to a well, and who does he meet there? He meets Rachel. And so there's this pattern that begins to where when you have a woman and a man that meet at a well, they get married. Moses leaves Egypt, and he comes to a well, and who does he happen to meet there? Zipporah. So there's this pattern that forms, and each of these stories want you to be thinking about these other stories as well. And so even when you come to Jesus in, in John's Gospel, 
Jesus comes to a well and he meets a woman. And what would you be expecting? Anybody who's reading that who knows the Old Testament would be expecting, or it's set up for them, there should be a marriage happening, but it's something different. Instead, Jesus asks this woman about her marriages and who she's with now. And so you can see how the Bible uses patterns like this. I'll give you one more. So in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve and Adam take the apple and eat it, there are three words that, used, that are used to describe what, Eve, what happens. It says, Eve saw that the apple was good for food. She took it, she ate it, and then she gave it. Now, when you get to Abraham and Sarah, when they're struggling with their faith in terms of God fulfilling his promise, Sarah sees her slave girl, Hagar. She takes her and she gives her to her husband. You can see the pattern. Now, David and Bathsheba. David is walking on the roof. He sees her, that she is good to the eye. He sends messages for her, but he takes her, and then he has his way with her. And what they're wanting you to do is to see they're framing the decisions that Abraham and Sarah, that David and Bathsheba, and several other places in the Old Testament, they're framing it in terms of the original sin. You, can you see the way that patterns function in this? So for baptism, well, so it's similar to if you were to make a movie, if someone were to make a movie today, and they were to insert the line to infinity and beyond, you would, Toy Story comes into your head. And it's a film that most of us know, some of us might know it like the back of our hand. We've seen it several times. But it would be similar to that. So without saying Toy Story, or without explaining anything, they have brought all of the content of Toy Story and all of the meaning and the, the emotions and everything that comes with it into your head while you're continuing with this movie. It's powerful. It's, it's really powerful. And so, um, let's see, I went through all these. Hold on. Where am I at my notes now? Um, okay, so the motif, the theme, the pattern that's really important for us today for baptism actually starts on the first page of the Bible. It starts in the creation narrative. Now it's important to have in mind when you read the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2 that they are not concerned with the science of creation. They're not concerned with photons and atoms and molecules. That's not what they're trying to do. Remember, if you try and approach a, uh, you know, if you try and approach a textbook the same way you approach something else, you're going to be confused. That's not what the Genesis 1 and chapter 2 are trying to do. Um, instead, they're wanting to say what it means to call God creator. Not just, the like, not just the nuts and bolts of what it means to call God creator. What is the nature of God as the creator? That's what Genesis 1 and chapter 2 are wanting to get at. And so when we talk about creation, we usually talk about creation from nothing. And that's a really important thing to talk about, but that's not what the Bible talks about. If you read the first two verses, which we have, <coughs> when we read the first two verses of Genesis chapter 1, oh, there it is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Sometimes it can be, it can be translated when God created, either way, there's ambiguity there. So the next verse, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
There's waters and darkness. The best way to translate all of this that I've heard is chaotic waters or waste and wild. Basically, the point is that it's uninhabitable and it's uninhabited. Life cannot live in this place or in the midst of these powers or waters. Life is impossible here. And so what God does is God separates. God goes through this. You can put it down. God goes through this series of conquering and dividing. God creates light and separates darkness from light. God separates the waters above from the waters below. Literally, they thought God just put this glass dome in the sky to hold the waters up. Because what falls from, the wa- from, from up there sometimes? It's blue. Water comes down. They just thought there, were, there was a dome and there was water on top of it, holding it back. And then, so God separates the, the waters above from the waters below and creates this space in between them. And then on the third day, God separates the waters below and creates dry ground. So he creates more space for life. And then God fills those spaces on the following three days. So you had day one, you had light and darkness. Day four, you have sun, moon, and stars. God fills that space. On day two, you have the waters above and the waters below. You have sky and sea. And on day five, two and five, God fills that space with fish, well, fish and birds. No, it's, wait, (laughs) birds and fish. And then on day six, so day three, you had the the dry ground and the waters, and God creates the crawling things, the animals, and humans. So you have this series of dividing, creating space for life, and then creating life in that space. So what it means to call God creator, what creation means in the Bible, is not just simply God creating something out of nothing. It's to say that God brings order out of chaos, and creates space for life, creates the possibility for life where previously there was not a possibility for life, where it was impossible. You tracking with me? Okay. That's what creation is about. And so we're going to fast forward a little bit to Genesis chapter 6, to Noah and the flood. Now, God was upset with creation. It even says he regretted creating creation. And the reasons why are because humans were wicked. Every, thoughts were given to, every one of their thoughts were given toward evil and they were violent. So God regrets it and God decides to start over. To wipe away the humans and the animals. Everyone except Noah. So he tells Noah to build an ark. And then the rains come. But not just any rain. If we listen to the way it, co- listen to the way it talks about it. After, well, is there... Is there something before that? Is that it? Okay. Uh, go to the next one and see if that's what it says. No, okay, never mind. I'll do this from first. So anyway, when it talks about the rains coming, it says the windows in the heavens opened, and it says the springs from below sprung forth. And so it's not just that it started raining. It's that when God created and made space, the way that he did it, that's coming apart. God is undoing what God had done in creation. And so now, verse 10 in chapter 7, after seven days, the waters once again covered the earth. So how long, what's in Genesis 1, how many days does God use to create? Seven. And after seven days, it's undone. 
you know, these lights, for anyone who knows the Genesis 1 story well enough, ought to be flashing. You just ought to have these, you know, lights going off in your head. Oh, this is undoing what God has done in Genesis on the first page of the Bible. And so it says, the springs of the great deep burst forth, and after seven days, creation was undone. And then it uses this particular word, only Noah remained. Only Noah remained, the remnant. And then one day, I think the next, yeah, one day, but God remembered Noah. So remnant and remembered. These are two more of those really important words. God remembered Noah. And it says, God caused a wind to blow over the earth. Now in Genesis, the, first, the second verse of Genesis, it said, and the spirit hovered over the face of the waters. Now in Hebrew, the word for spirit and the word for wind are the same thing. In English, it's translated depending on the context. But it's the same word, ruach. It's a fun, say it with me, ruach. You got to get the, you know, the, the thing in the throat going on, ruach. So here, God remembered Noah and God made a wind blow over, a ruach, a spirit blow over the earth. And so what's happening here? Where there is now no space for life, where creation has been undone, God begins to create again. God begins to make space again for life. And then finally, the waters begin to subside until finally dry ground appears. Again, dry ground. These lights ought to be flashing. And so we're going to fast forward again to the book of Exodus. The Israelites are slave in Egypt. Life is difficult and oppressive, but they are still prospering. They are still multiplying, even in the midst of chaos and a situation where life seems, would seem impossible. And so um, God provides, uh, well, here, so the Israelites, go ahead, wait for just a second on that one. So the Israelites, they call out to God, and God remembers them. Actually, is that the one that I had up? Oh, thank you. So Israel groaned because of their slavery. And then on the next slide. And the cry of rescue for slavery came up to God. And it says God remembered them. The same way that God remembered Moses. And so immediately following this, God calls, uh, God called, the same way that God remembered Noah. Did I say Moses? So immediately following this, God calls Moses. And begins to make a way, begins to make a way for Israel to come out. He goes to Pharaoh, and eventually Pharaoh relents and releases the Israelites to go and to worship God, to serve God. And then he quickly changes his mind. So the Israelites are out in the desert, and then all of a sudden, Pharaoh and all of his chariots, every single one of his chariots, and all of his best men, it says he sits all of his officers in the chariots. So this isn't just the scrubs. This isn't a ragtag bunch of Egyptian soldiers. This is the best of them. They're hot on their tails. And they catch them at the Red Sea. So the Israelites are positioned to where the chariots of Egypt are on one side of them. And the Red Sea waters are on the other side of them. And the space for the possibility of their life is closing in around them. And they're scared. They're scared to death. They say to, to, to Moses... Is it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? Snarky even in the midst of such, such uh, chaos. 
And they were scared to death. But Moses says this. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And so it's, the, it's very clear, the Bible's very clear, this is at night. And Moses lifts his hand. And what does God send? What does God send on the water? A ruach. Here's that word again. God sends a wind or a spirit. Who knows? Because it's, it's the same word in Hebrew. God sends a ruach across the waters and they separate. And what do they walk across on? Dry ground. These lights ought to be flashing. And so they cross at night. Then, Mo, um, yeah, oh, so here it is, yeah. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Again, Genesis 1 just ought to be flashing in the back of your mind. <clears throat> and so God, it goes on to say that when it was morning, so again, you have the, it was evening and it was morning the first day, the second day in Genesis chapter 1. Now it's morning. God tells Moses to extend his hand again out and the waters collapse on themselves again, consuming the Egyptian army. And whereas before when the waters closed in on the earth, it said Noah remained, here it says none of them remained. And so now we're going to fast forward again. Moses has died. And Joshua has taken over, and he's beginning to lead the people into the promised land. So they come to the Jordan River, and God gives them specific instructions about how to cross it. And the priest, bearing the Ark of the Covenant, step into the waters. And what happens to the waters? They, they stop. So whereas in the sea, they separate. Here they stop, and it says they pile up, and the people walk across on dry ground. Can you see the pattern? You can see it. Uh, again, there's a few more examples. Elijah and Elisha walk across the Jordan River on dry ground. But what happens is that the prophets, uh, during the exile and during, later on in Israel's history, the prophets take, they take this pattern, they take this, this way of thinking about God as creator, and they begin to work with it. They begin to work with it, forming the hopes of Israel, helping Israel to put words to their hope of salvation and redemption. And so in Isaiah chapter 11, I'll, we'll read it. This is verses 11 and then verses 15 through 16. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it and breath again. Breath is that word ruach. And strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was from Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Can hear the references back to these stories. And it gets fainter and fainter, but again, the people reading Isaiah, the people Isaiah would have been preaching to, would have been so steeped in those stories that even the most subtle references would have called them to mind for them. And so what the prophets did 
was rather than waters being what was threatening the life of uh, threatening life and encroaching in on it and making the possibility for life impossible the the prophets began to speak about the nations the hostile nations surrounding Israel in this way Babylon and Assyria and the Persians and then finally Rome so instead, these hostile nations become the waters, from the, the death-dealing waters or powers from which the hope for God, the God of creation, to come and redeem Israel from. Do you, does that make sense? Can you see what's happening? And so in Israel, to think of God as creator was to say that God can make a way when, when things seem impossible. It's to say that God can create space for life when the walls are closing in. And so the hope of Israel was for a new creation, for God to do something new and to create life and space for life where it seems impossible. And the New Testament writers, the New Testament, uh, the apostles and the other writers in the New Testament, they would have read scripture this way. They would have thought this way so anytime, almost any time you hear Paul speaking about baptism, he's always referencing something from the Old Testament. In fact, when we went through 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, he says it this way. Just as the Israelites were baptized into Moses in, in the sea, so have you been baptized. I mean, it's, a, it's an explicit reference there. And so they want us to understand the life and the death and the resurrection and the work of Jesus as the Messiah in these terms of birthing the new creation, of doing this thing that God was going to do, this new creation in the midst of the old. And so now we come to the book of Matthew. Now, we're not quite to the baptism yet, but just to kind of point out to you that how they're wanting us to read Jesus or to read about, to think about Jesus in terms of creation. So in Matthew chapter 1, this is the way Matthew's book starts. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that word genealogy is translated to, it's, in English it's genealogy, but are you ready for this? You, you just, the Greek word is Genesis. Genesis, so Matthew 1.1, Genesis 1.1. It's, I mean, just... That's the, the Greek word Genesis is what we translate to genealogy. Now, in, in, chapter, or in verse 18 of the first chapter of Matthew, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, and so the story begins. The word for birth, does anybody want to take a stab at what the Greek word is for birth there? It's Genesis. It's the same word. We just translate them differently. <laughs> it's the same word. Matthew has used Genesis twice in the first chapter of his gospel in the first chapter of his attempt to explore and to share who Jesus was and what Jesus did. So again, these lights ought to be flashing. And so, you know, when, when we think about baptism, specifically Jesus' baptism, but also generally our baptisms, we ought to be thinking in terms of creation, or more specifically, the new creation. And so now we're going to read our passage for today. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, 
Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for, all, for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, does anyone know what Jesus' name in Hebrew is, or in Aramaic? Yeshua, which would be Joshua. So again, Joshua translated means God saves. Yahweh saves. That's what it means. So Jesus' name is literally God saves. It comes, we have it as Jesus from Greek pronunciation and things like that. Way, I'm not going into that. But, but his mama would have called him Joshua or Yeshua. And so, again, and where does Jesus come to be baptized? In the Jordan River. So, again, Joshua comes to the Jordan River and leads the people across it into the promised land. So, again, these lights ought to be flashing. Now, what happens when Jesus comes out of the waters? Now, in the Genesis account of creation and in the Exodus, you have waters separating. But here, the heavens split. The heavens separate, and you have a dove which is often, which here is symbolic of the spirit, of a ruah, coming down and alighting on Jesus. And then you have a voice from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I am pleased. Listen to him. And so baptism and our participation in it, our partaking in it, is part of the continued saving work of God that we read about beginning in Genesis chapter 1, that we see again in, in Noah's story, in the Exodus story, and over and over again. It's our participation in the beginning of the new creation. And as we enter the waters, we are buried with Christ in his death. Our lives lived on our own terms come to an end. Our vain attempts at trying to create lives for ourselves die with Jesus and all of the hopes that we heap onto him the false hopes that we heap on to him. And in, in the tombs of our lives, lived, ruled by ourselves, there is no hope for a future. In these waters, with these waters, we die with Christ and to those lives. But as we come out on the other side of these waters, as we emerge from these waters, we rise with Jesus as a part of the new creation as a citizen of God's kingdom. And just as Jesus was marked by God as his child when he came out of the waters, so too are we marked as children of God when we come from out of these waters. Baptism is primarily about what God is doing. It's primarily about God marking you as a child of God, as a citizen of God's kingdom, as a part of the new creation, even here in the midst of the old. But what does life look like on the other side of baptism? What does it look like to be marked by God as one of the, rem the remnant, one called apart and gifted with God's spirit? You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that things will be easier. It doesn't mean that you are going to feel any different on the other side of these waters. It doesn't mean that the situations and the temptations that you faced before them will be any different or that they will go away. And this is not despite the Spirit. This is not despite baptism. 
Because the very next verse in Matthew's Gospel, after Jesus is baptized, is, is 4 verse 1 in there? The very next verse, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. This is the very next verse following the baptism of Jesus. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And what is different in your life is not the situations that you face or your day-to-day -day life. What is different is that you have been marked by God as a child of God, as a member, as a part of the new creation. You know, the first words that Jesus hears following his baptism. Now the Spirit leads him into the wilderness and the first words that he hears are these. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. This new identity has been challenged. The, the last words that Jesus heard was, this is my Son. And the very next one that he hears are, if you are the Son of God. You will be challenged living the baptized life, living the life of the new creation. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But what does the baptized, spirit-filled life look like? In a, what it looks like is obedience to the will of the Father. That is what a citizen of God's kingdom is marked by. And what does that obedience look like? You can probably all say this together with me. It looks like a spirit, the spirit-filled life of a community or individual looks like the practice of the, of the self-giving love of God. That's what it looks like. That's what it means. And so you all have been caught up by God into this saving work. To whatever level of participation you take in it, that's a different question. But you are here today, we believe, because God has called you here today. Because God has seen it in God's providence fit. God has seen it fit in God's providence to bring you here. And so we're going to celebrate the new creation today by, well, by baptizing a couple of folks. And so we're going to sing another song. <coughs> and then uh, we're going to have, uh, our, uh, we're going to proceed with our baptisms today. Okay? Let me say a prayer. God of creation, Lord, we thank you Lord, for the creation that you have made, for the space that you have made for life, for our lives, for our life together, but most importantly for our life with you. God, we pray that you would continue to work in, in the midst of this age, in the midst of this old creation, creating space uh, Lord, sending your spirit, uh, creating space for life, uh, even in the midst of, of situations and, 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 and places where life seems impossible, where it seems like the forces of our world are working against, in every way possible, against life. God, we pray that you would, um, Lord, that you would be with us as we continue in worship, Lord, and as we participate in this rite, in this sacrament that you have given us. In Jesus' name. Amen.